this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to part 2 of our series of podcasts on the israel palestine conflict In the first part of this series we looked at the origins of this conflict which began with the steady influx of Jewish settlers in Palestinian territories and culminated in the founding of the state of Israel in 1948 In this episode of In Focus we explore the key developments of this conflict from 1948 onwards to the present and we are once again joined by Stanley Johnny the Hindu's international affairs editor Stanley thank you so much for joining us Thanks, Amber. Thanks for having me. So, uh, to start with, uh, we ended uh, the last episode on the Israel-Palestine uh, conflict with the founding of the state of Israel in 1948, uh, Stanley. So, I was just wondering if you could uh, begin by talking about the Arab world's response uh, to the founding of Israel. Yeah. Uh, so, the state of Israel was declared in May. 1948 May 14 1948 so before that we had discussed in our previous episode that in 1947 the UN had put opposition plan to vote uh the UN scope UN special committee on Palestine so the UN scope had come up with this proposal of dividing uh historical palestine into three a jewish state an arab state and Jerusalem as an international city so the jewish agency of palestine the provisional leadership of the settlers in south palestine this jewish agency which was led by ben gurion was working with un scope they were cooperating with un scope whereas the arab countries rejected the proposal outright because the arab countries argument was that first of all they rejected the idea of partitioning palestine because they said according to the un uh, new, new un charter right to determination etc etc the palestinians have the right to determine their future and the colonized palestine british palestine should be an independent country that's one point secondly they said the partition plan itself uh, was uh, in favor of the jews because according to the plan 58% of 56% of the historical palestine was given to uh the jewish state where as the rest uh, minus jerusalem was given to the arabs uh, uh so the jewish population at that time was roughly 800000 700000 plus and the arab population was twi- twice as much still more territories were given to the jewish uh, state this is what the arab criticism was uh but then this would lead to civil strife inside historical palestine and before the british mandate vacated the jewish agency the zionists would declare the state of israel in may 1948 so the arab countries surrounding arab countries would immediately declare war against the new state so basically egypt primarily egypt syria lebanon and jordan and uh, iraq would also send troops saudi arabia would support the war efforts so these countries would declare war against the new state and then you will have the first arab israel war which would start immediately after you know the state of israel was declared and would, would go on for months the armistice would be agreed only in 1949 uh, 
So this was the response. But then what will happen, you know, by the time ceasefire was reached, what will happen is that if you look at the UN partition plan, you know, so uh, the West Bank was part of, of course, was part of, uh, I mean, it was supposed to be part of the future Arab state, as well as the Gaza Strip. But the Gaza Strip was not the Gaza Strip which we know, which we now know. So the Gaza region had uh, a, a geographical contiguity with the West Bank. And then the rest, including the Negev Desert and the northern part of Israel, the northern part of Palestine, would make up the future Jewish state. This was the UN partition plan. And Jerusalem was not part of the UN partition plan, right? But after the war, by the time a ceasefire was reached in the war, uh, Israel, the new state, would capture some 22% more territories than what the UN partition plan had proposed. So, at 1945, there is no geographical contiguity between Gaza Strip and uh, West Bank. And also, you know, Gaza, Gaza was limited to the current shape, current space in 1948 itself. And then what will happen to historical Palestine? You know, the rest of the territories would not remain a Palestinian occupied territory because the Jordanians would capture the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Israel would capture West Jerusalem. So from 1948 onwards, West Jerusalem has been Israel's seat of power. This doesn't have international recognition, but Israel's foreign ministry, Israel's parliament, the Knesset, is, I mean, everything is in uh, the West, is in West Jerusalem. So West Jerusalem is, has been an Israeli city since 1948. But the Jordanians would take East Jerusalem as well as the West Bank, the whole of West Bank. So that's, that's why we call it Transjordan which means the territories on the two banks of the Jordan River. And then the Egyptians would take uh, Gaza Strip. So at the end of the war, what, will, what we see is that three countries would divide historical Palestine among themselves. That Israel, the, the, you have a state of Israel, and then you have Gaza Strip, which would be controlled by Egypt. And then you have uh, West Bank, and East Jerusalem that were taken over by Jordan. So this was the 1949 status of Palestine. See, you had just uh, explained uh, how uh, in the 1948 war, the historical Palestinian uh, territories had been divided between these three uh, state forces, Israel, Egypt, and Jordan. So I was just wondering, in this entire war, which sort of began in 1948 until there was a truce which was reached in 1949, did there, was there any Palestinian militia or army or Palestinian forces which fought for their territory? Because this seems to have been like completely divided among three external agents, so to speak, external to Palestinian, historical Palestine as, as it were. So was there any Palestinian army or uh, armed force which took part in this uh, Conflict? No. The, see, there, there were local Arab movements, local Palestinian ground level political movements involved in it. Rashid Khalidi writes extensively about it in his book, 100 Years of War on Palestine. So, the Arab elders in Palestine, they wanted, they were opposed to partition. They wanted one state for both Jews and as well as Arabs. And there were occasional uh, flare-ups also in historical Palestine between the Jewish militia groups, Irgun and Haganah, 
as well as the Arab uh, Palestinians. But see, they may have the Palestinian youth may have joined the war uh, along with the Jordanians and others to fight Israel. Uh, and we also know that the 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 civil strife, the creation of the state of Israel, uh, and as well as the uh, continuing uh, war, had triggered some seven hundred thousand Palestinians. You know, turned them into refugees. So mostly, most of them were driven away from the territories that became Israel today. So some of them were pushed to Jordan, some of them were pushed to West Bank, some of them were pushed to Gaza. So Gaza's population apparently uh, tripled uh, in 1948 just because the Arabs living in this area uh, in Israel, I mean in, in the parts that became Israel, were driven out and then they moved to Gaza. So this these local tensions were going on and the locals may have joined the war, but there was no Arab or there was no Palestinian resistance movement as such. That would be formed or that would take prominence only in the 1960s with the formation of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Right. So can you take us through uh, what happened subsequent to this truce 1949? Uh, there was this uh, entire carving up of historical Palestine, as you put it. So what what were the developments from 1949 till the 60s uh, when you said the PLO was uh, formed and then the Palestinian resistance took on a different uh, dimension as it were? So throughout the 1950s and 1960s, uh, if you look at West Asia, the major contradiction Geopolitical contradiction of West Asia is the rivalry between the Arabs and the Israelis. And this was also the period of, you know, hate and Arab nationalism. And Arabs, they believed that in 1949, 1948-1949, what happened was injustice, right? Because historical Palestine was now divided and the state of Israel was declared. It was declared unilaterally, but then got recognition of the world's uh, top powers, which we discussed in the previous episode, immediately after the new state was declared. Uh, so, Israel is now a reality, and Israel came into existence within the borders of Palestine, and they lost territory. So, Arabs had this, this feeling uh, that they were betrayed by the world that was there. And they, were, they saw Israel as a hostile country, and Israel saw Arabs as a hostile country, because from Israel's point of view, this is a new state. It was create, just created and they fought off Arab armies from 1948 to 49, but still they are living in an entirely hostile region. So this hostility continued to drive and define their relationship, Arab-Israel relationship, you know. Uh, and then uh, you have the 1956 Suez crisis uh, in which Israel, along with the French and the British, they attacked Egypt. And then they took over at that time Gaza Strip. But then from Israel's point of view, it went bad for them because neither the United States nor the Soviet Union backed the Suez adventure. Because from the United States' point of view, President Eisenhower was not happy that the French and the British, who he thought were the powers of yesteryears, still continued to uh, you know, dominate their, their influence in the region. Whereas on the other side, the Soviet Union saw that its ally, Egypt, was being threatened. Uh, and then uh, apparently Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, asked uh, Israeli Prime Minister to pull back troops from uh, Sinai Peninsula, uh, pull back troops from Gaza, or face Soviet rockets. 
this was an open threat. Nathan Thrall writes about this in his book, The Only Language They Understand. And because he, he writes this because this was one of the few occasions where Israel actually, uh, you know, faced global heat and pullback. And Israel was forced to retreat troops from Gaza uh, uh, at that time uh, in, in 1956. Uh, but then this Arab-Israel rivalry would continue to drive the uh, the main geopo geopolitical mainstay of uh, West Asia. But then in 1967, you know, basically the six-day war would break out. Israel would attack uh, Egypt. But Israel was thinking that Egyptian and Syrian countries were coming together, Syrian forces were coming together, and that would pose a security challenge. So Israel would preemptively start the war. But then we know that in six days, it's called the June War or the Six-Day War, 1967 War, whatever you call it. So in the June War, Israel would defeat all the major Arab forces in six days. This was Israel's. Israel was at the pinnacle of its power, its, 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 you know, its, its military power at that time. Because it, defeat, it defeated Egypt, it, it, uh, it defeated Egypt and, and captured Gaza Strip from Egypt. It defeated Jordan and captured the whole of West Bank and uh, Eastern Jerusalem from the Jordanians. And then it pushed back the Syrians and took over Golan Heights. And of these three territories, even now, now it's what? This happened in 1950. In 1967, it's been 53 years, right? Since then, except Sinai Peninsula, Egypt took Sinai Peninsula and Gaza, Israel took Sinai Peninsula and Gaza from Egypt. So except Sinai Peninsula, all the territories are still controlled by uh, Israel. So Gaza, we can say that at least Israel was not or is not at this point of time, not directly involved uh, on the ground, but it's still blockaded by Israel. West Bank is directly under Israel's military occupation. Jerusalem is, you know, Israel has annexed Jerusalem, Israel annexed it in 1980, and Golan hates, again, Syrian Golan hates, Israel annexed it uh, as part of its own territory, uh, which has been recognized by the United States, interestingly. The United States, which, you know, supports, which calls Russia's annexation of Crimea uh, as a major violation of international uh, rule, which is true, which was, it was a violation of the international norms and laws, the same United States uh, unilaterally recognized Israel's annexation of Syrian Golan Heights. So, the territories Israel captured in 1967, all territories except Sinai Peninsula, are still controlled by Israel after all these years. So, in 1967, from a military point of view, Israel made huge advances, huge, made huge advantages. It gained territory and it believed that it established deterrence. So it emerged as a major dominant military force in West Asia because if the period from 1948 to 1967, Israel was constantly living under the threat of an Arab attack. In 1967, Israel established itself as a major uh, military force uh, in the region. And then it also gained more territories. So West Bank, from 1967 onwards, the Palestinian, so Palestinian territories would be under Israel's direct occupation. So you should look at how what happened. 1948, Israel was formed within the Palestinian territories and rest of the Palestinian territories were taken over by neighboring countries. In 1967, Israel defeats all the neighboring Arab countries and seizes territories from them. So which means from 1967 onwards, the whole of historical Palestine comes under Israel's control. Either Israel proper, 
or regions, Palestinian territories under Israel's military occupation. So this is what happened in 1967. Right. So there has been a complete uh, change in the, in the dimensions of the Israel state uh, with each of these military clashes. And what happened with the subsequent military conflict? I think in the 1980s too, there were a couple of wars in the 1970s as well. Can you talk a little bit about those uh, uh, military encounters as well? So when Hamas launched its attack, the October 7th Shabbat attack, there was a lot of comparisons between what happened in 1973 and what happened now. Because 1973, Israel was actually taken aback when Syrian and Egyptian forces started attacking Israel in Golan as well as in Sinai Peninsula on the Yom, Yom Kippur Day, which is a Jewish holiday. So in 1967, Israel thought that it established deterrence. You know, it became a dominant military power. So, so the military pundits as well as Israel's leadership what they believed was that Arab countries would not challenge Israel militarily after this. Whereas on the other side, Egypt. So in 1967, Jamal Abdul Nasser, the charismatic leader, Arab pan-Arab leader, was the leader of Egypt. But the 1967 defeat finished off Nasser's political career. He would die in a couple of years and then Sadat would become the next president. Sadat wanted Sinai Peninsula back because Sadat believed that Egypt fought for the Palestinians, but now Egypt has to fight for themselves, for itself. So in 1973, he was coordinating with the Syrians. So 1973 means Hafiz al-Assad was back in power. Uh, so Hafiz al-Assad was in power, who was Bashar's father. In 1970, he would capture power. So Hafiz had st stabilized to Syria. And Sadat is the new leader of Egypt. Sadat wanted Sinai Peninsula back. But how will you get Sinai Peninsula back? Israel is not ready to compromise, right? So Sadat wanted to break the status quo. He wanted to tell the Israelis that if you don't give Sinai, which is my territory, back to me, you are not going to get peace. This was his message. And then he planned for the war, which the Israeli intelligence agencies failed to detect. So they were actually surprised when Sadat launched the war in 1973. And Sadat's forces made rapid advances in Sinai Peninsula, they, it, which is his own territory, but Israeli troops were stationed there. So his troops marched into Sinai Peninsula and even in Golan, and they killed a lot of Israeli soldiers during the war. And then Golda Meir was the prime minister. Uh, and Israelis wanted the territory. Israelis actually, they were, you know, uh, they were surprised by the attack, but they eventually, they pushed back. They wanted advanced weapons from the United States at that time. And the Americans and the Soviets had some kind of an understanding that they would not send offensive weapons to their allies, respective allies, because they wanted to ruin in their allies and, uh, you know, cool down the tensions of the Cold War. But then the Israelis tell, Israelis are telling, now, the Americans that if this is the quote the Israeli Prime Minister used, if we go down, we will bring the entire region down. So this is interpreted as a wield threat of using nuclear weapons. Then the Americans would come to the rescue of the Israelis, and then they would push back the Egyptians and capture, you know, recapture Sinai Peninsula. And and even in uh, Golan Heights, they would push the Syrians back. So effectively, the Israelis 
did not suffer any territorial loss but the war itself the war broke the status quo by launching the war just you know 6 years after the 1967 defeat egypt proved that they remained a major security challenge for israel this we know that this would eventually lead to the camp david agreement 1978 and 1979 because you know israel would also be open would be open to have peace negotiations with the egyptians and in 1978 as part of the camp david agreement israel would eventually return the sinai peninsula back to the egyptians so sadat would get what he got but what he wanted but in return he offered recognition to the state of israel so egypt would become the first arab country to offer uh, diplomatic recognition to the state of israel so interestingly in 1967 after the june war arab countries would meet in khartoum in sudan and then they they said that they will not have you know what they are famous three nos no recognition no peace and no talks with israel so the all all arab countries and then you have uh, you know a, a decade later uh, egypt which at that time was the most powerful and influential arab country egypt itself making peace with israel because egypt wanted its territory back so israel from israel's point of view it got the recognition of the first arab country in 1978 but the egyptians also sadat also wanted something for the palestinians so sadat asked israel to make some compromise and uh, you know um, jimmy carter was the american president carter had also put pressure on uh, israel israel at that time was ruled by a right wing government manasha begin likud the first likud government and then the israelis would agree to the framework for peace agreement so it was in the framework for peace agreement for the first time the israelis would accept that palestinian palestinian provisional government would be allowed to be formed inside the occupied territories so you see this is this the origins of oslo actually go to the 1978 79 framework for peace agreement uh, which the egyptians managed to get from the israelis right and around this time uh, when this camp david agreement uh, happened stanley we also had by this time i think the plo coming into the scheme of things how did that happen yeah plo uh, would become a major force in the 1960s itself plo would be formed in the 1960s and then arafat would launch uh, you know uh, this guerrilla fighting against uh the israeli army the occupying army uh, but then they would be forced out of initially the plo was operating from uh, jordan but then jordan would clamp down on the plo and then they would move to lebanon and from southern lebanon would be their main base the plos and plo would start carrying out attacks rocket attacks as well as on ground attacks inside israeli territories throughout the 1970s and plo also got support from uh a lot of uh, in, you know mainly third world countries including india because they looked at the plo and then they saw the plo as the main vehicle for the palestinian liberation movement uh yasser arafat said i will offer peace to those who want peace and i will offer gun to those who want guns so this is what arafat once famously said at the un uh so but you see the israelis when they started facing the plo as a security challenge they carried out two major operations one in 1978 which is uh operation litani 
and then in 1982, both were in Lebanon. So in, in 1978, the Israeli plan was to send troops into southern Lebanon, where the PLO was based, and push the PLO to the northern bank of the Litani River, which means beyond southern Lebanon, so that they were creating kind of a buffer in the south. So the Israelis thought that, so that the attack from the Palestinian militants uh, would stop or would go down. And the Israelis go there, they push the PLO, uh, you know, to the north of the Litani, and then they come back. Uh, you know, after a few months, they would pull back troops. But then the PLO would move to the border again and start carrying out attacks. So Israel, you know, was faced with, I mean, it's, 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 it's similar to what is happening now in Gaza. Israel in the last many years had carried out several attacks in Gaza to neutralize Hamas, but Hamas keeps attacking the Israelis, right? So Israel, what they did in 1982, they would send, they would send troops to southern Lebanon again for a proper lasting, uh, invasion. Uh, again, you have parallels between what happened in 1982 and what is, what might happen now because Israel is now preparing for a ground invasion. It's being delayed for reasons which we don't know, but Israel is expected to launch a ground attack of Gaza uh, in the coming days, right? So in 1982, when Israel launched the, launched the war, Israeli Prime Minister Menashe Begin at that time said that we will have 40 years of peace after this war. This was his promise, like Netanyahu is now promising to crush Hamas, right? But you know, what history tells us was that the war itself went down for 18 years. Israel went into Lebanon in 1982 and Israel got out of Lebanon in 2000 after 18 years of war. And by the time Israel got out of Lebanon, you know, PLO was not a major threat, but you had created or you, I mean, you created conditions that led to the rise of Hezbollah. So you basically, you went into Lebanon to push the PLO out of Lebanon and you push the PLO out of Lebanon. PLO leadership was forced to leave Lebanon and eventually they will move to Tunis, in Tunisia. But then Israel wanted to stay in Lebanon because they wanted to shape Lebanon's political future so that Lebanon would not be a threat. That was the main, their long-term agenda. But then Israel's continuing occupation of Lebanon. Lebanon is a very complex country, right? You have... The, the Shias are a sizable population, but are historically downtrodden. Uh, and then you have Sunnis and Maronite Christians. Israel wanted to ally themselves with the Maronite Christians, and you also had Druze. But then, when the Israeli occupation continued, Iran, which became the Islamic Republic in 1979, Iran found it as an opportunity, you know, to keep pressure on Israel, and Iran helped the Shias mobilize themselves and help the creation of Hezbollah. So by the time Israel withdrew from Lebanon in, in, in 2000, mainly because of Hezbollah's violent resistance, you know, Hezbollah, Israel had Hezbollah as a major uh, security challenge just across the border. So this is the, you know, the, the, to cut it short, Israel went to southern Lebanon in 1982 to defeat the PLO, and it was forced out of southern Lebanon by Hezbollah, which is a much bigger and stronger security tribal. Right. I mean, that's, that's quite a fascinating uh, history, uh, Stanley. Really appreciate you sort of detailing it out, especially the rise of uh, Hezbollah, which in which Israeli occupation of Lebanon itself had had a very uh, crucial role to play. 
Now, I was just wondering uh, what happened uh, with the Oslo Accords, the Oslo Peace Process. I mean, I remember, I mean, uh, we were all much younger back then, reading about it. Can you talk a little bit about the role of the Oslo Peace Process in, in sort of raising hopes only to sort of disappoint? Yeah, um, so towards the end of the 1980s, you know, overall the political situation was changing across the world and also in the region. So Israel, in 1982, Israel would go to Lebanon, push the PLO out of the country, but the PLO would continue to operate from Tunis. And inside the Palestinian territories, there were protests going on, regular protests against the occupation. And in 1987, the first Intifada would break out. So what is the Intifada? What does it mean? Intifada means what exactly? Is it a revolution? Uh, yeah, it's an uprising. Uprising against the occupation. The trigger incident was an accident that happened in Gaza, uh, which would lead to, uh, you know, uh, which caused the death of Palestinians. And that would lead to strikes. And it would, you know, eventually become a mass uprising across the occupied territories in Gaza as well as uh, in the West Bank. And the PLO would officially call for mass sit-ins and protests and agitations against the occupation. And Hamas, which was formed in 1988, Hamas would also, I mean, before that, you had the Muslim Brotherhood in Gaza. But then Hamas, as you know, as an organization as we know today, they had also joined the, they had also called for uh, its, its, its supporters to join the, join the Intifada. So, so Israel was under pressure. And you see the international scene, 1989, collapse of the Berlin Wall, uh, and new republics in Eastern Europe. Countries were moving away from the Russian orbit. And then uh, in the in, in 1990s, there were new countries, in early 1990s, because of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So there is this push from both within and outside to find a solution to the Palestinian question. So as part of that, in 1991, there was this Madrid conference. And then Israelis would also come around to have direct negotiations with the PLO. And the PLO would also uh, agree to formally recognize the state of Israel. So until then, PLO's main uh, you know, argument was that they wanted to liberate the whole of Palestine from the river to the sea, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. But in 1993, as part of the Oslo process, the PLO recognized Israel, you know, based on the 1967 border, which means a future Palestinian state. The PLO was ready to accept a future Palestinian state in the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. The rest of the territories, they recognized as the state of Israel. And as part of the Oslo process, the West Bank was divided into three areas, area A, B, C. A was controlled by the new Palestinian authority that the Oslo process agreed to form. Uh, B, uh, responsibilities and powers would be shared between Israeli security agencies as well as the Palestinians. C would remain under Israel, Israel's control. But then eventually what Oslo promised was statehood for the Palestinians. But then, you know, the PLO was for Oslo because for them Oslo offered a new hope uh, for a solution to the Palestine question. Hamas attacked Oslo because Hamas said that by accepting, by recognizing the state of Israel, uh, the PLO has, has compromised and the PLO has also accepted the proposal that, uh, you know, they, they would be okay with a future Palestinian state that would make up some 
of historical Palestine. You know, it was it was it was roughly 40 plus percent according to the UN partition plan, and it's now come down to 30 percent or something with the Oslo process. So, Stanley, just to clarify something, so in as part of the Oslo uh, Pact. Did Israel agree to recognize Palestine as 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 a, state, a full fledged state? Because you said Palestine people agree to recognize Israel as for the nineteen sixty seven borders. So did Israel also agree to recognize Palestine as an equal uh, sovereign state? Israel agreed. Israel agreed to form. I mean, this the the difference is that the PLO's recognition of the state of Israel was instant because state of Israel was there. Okay. But the state of Palestine was not there. But Israel agreed to allow the formation of a state of Palestine. Basically, Israel also, Israel is a signatory to the Oslo process. The Oslo process promised statehood to the Palestinians. So this was supposed to happen in the future. Was there any date in the future as in was there a date fixed for it? Was there any timeline? No, there was no timeline. But they were supposed to continue the negotiations throughout the 1990s. Uh, but what happens was that uh, Ilsaq Rabin was assassinated, the prime minister who signed the Oslo Agreement. And then uh, Shimon Peres would immediately become the prime minister. But in the elections, in the subsequent elections, Peres would be defeated and uh, our man, Benjamin Netanyahu, would become the prime minister for the first time. And then you see the Netanyahu would pra- actually attack the Palestinians of reneging on the security promises they made because this was also a period when Hamas was carrying out attacks against the Israelis, including suicide attacks against Israeli citizens as well as the soldiers. So from Netanyahu's point of view, Oslo had promised security to the Israelis, but it is not providing security. So since Oslo is not actually delivering on the security angle, we are not going to respect the other aspects of the Oslo process. So basically, in the later half of the 1990s, the entire Oslo process collapsed because Netanyahu failed to keep the promises which uh, uh, his predecessor made. While on the other side, Hamas continued to carry out the attacks. But the PLO said they remained committed to Oslo, but they were unable to do anything about it. So in the later half of the 1990s, what we saw was that Oslo was crumbling. And this would actually lead to the second Camp David negotiations in 2000, when Yasser Arafat and, uh, you know, Barak, Prime Minister Ehud Barak, uh, went to Camp David uh, when President Clinton was hosting the negotiations. But the, the, one of the drawbacks of Oslo was that it didn't specify anything about the status of Jerusalem. It didn't specify anything about the right of return. So we discussed that 700,000 Palestinians were driven out of their homes in 1948. So you have this internationally recognized right for all the refugees to return to their homes. So the Palestinians say when a future Palestinian state is formed, the refugees should be allowed to come back to their homes. Their homes means it is in today's Israel. They were driven out of their homes, right? But Barak or or any other Israeli leadership would not accept that because they fear that once these Palestinian refugees and their offspring are allowed to come back, that would change the demographics of the state of Israel. Uh, so this remained a, a major issue. Oslo didn't address this problem. So, and also the state of Israel, uh, state, the state the state of capital. Uh, so in the Camp David, there were these issues. Barak had, you know, uh, briefly agreed to the border, but this these two issues remained. 
major problem and then uh, Yasser Arafat walked out of the Camp David talks. So, you know, this was another chance to form a future Palestinian state or take Oslo ahead, but it didn't happen. And the collapse of, the total collapse of Oslo would lead to the second Intifada in 2000, which compared to the 1980s, this is a violent uprising and mainly Hamas was uh, in the driving seat here. And then it is because of Second Intifada, it is because of Hamas's violent resistance that Israel was forced to withdraw from Gaza in 2005. Israel withdrew its troops uh, as well as the settlers, Jewish settlers in 2005. So ever since, Israel hasn't been directly occupying Gaza Strip. But we know that from 2007 onwards, Israel has imposed a blockade on Gaza, which is still there. Right. I mean, thank you so much, Stanley, for taking us uh, through uh, so many uh, decades of uh, history of this conflict right up to the present uh, when uh, this current uh, latest round of uh, really uh, major conflict is going on. I was just wondering, as in what, what exactly has been the role of uh, Hezbollah? You, you referred to Hezbollah earlier uh, in the context of Israeli occupation of uh, southern Lebanon. Uh, and you said how you also explained how Iran was instrumental in sort of enabling the Shia population in Lebanon to sort of resist uh, uh, this kind of uh, adventure from Israel's side. So, what has been the role of Hezbollah in the whole uh, Palestine-Israel conflict so far? I was also curious because a lot of commentary now uh, seems to hinge on uh, to what extent Hezbollah would might get involved in case there is a ground invasion of. Gaza by Israel. So, you know, Hezbollah doesn't have anything to do directly with the Palestinian cause. Hezbollah is a Lebanese Shia organization, uh, which was basically, you know, helped by the Iranians uh, throughout the last whatever, 20, 30 years. And, uh, you know, Hezbollah made a name by fighting the Israelis first during the occupation of southern Lebanon from 1982 to 2000. And then during the 2006 war. And Israel was forced to withdraw from Lebanon because of Hezbollah's resistance in 2000. And in 2006, Israel invaded Lebanon, fought Hezbollah for 34 days, but eventually had to agree to a ceasefire and pull back troops. Uh, I remember talking to an Israeli brigadier last year on the Lebanese-Israeli border. So then he told me, uh, I uh, had written it in, in, in one of our reports, and he told me that uh, from an operational point of view, the IDF has a lot of respect for Hezbollah uh, compared to Hamas. Uh, Hamas doesn't have that kind of advanced, uh, neither the weapons nor that kind of training in ground warfare, whereas Hezbollah is fighting like an army, fighting like a trained army. That's what. Uh, he told me then, uh, last November. So, uh, and Hezbollah has proved that they can be, uh, you know, uh, a very efficient rival to Israel, to, to IDF, both during the occupation and also in 2006. But Hezbollah has offered solidarity with the Palestinian cause. Uh, Hezbollah has offered, you know, um, uh, ideological support or propaganda support, uh, always uh, for the Palestinians, for Hamas. Uh, so, you know, and another commonality is that both Hamas and Hezbollah are supported by the Iranians. 
So after this, the current crisis broke out. Hezbollah had fired some rockets into the Sheba farms, uh, which is occupied by the Israelis, and Israel had retaliated. So by firing rockets into Sheba, Hezbollah once again declared their solidarity with the Palestinian cause. But will Hezbollah attack Israel? Will Hezbollah open another war front uh, for Hamas in defense of uh, the Palestinians? I don't think so. Uh, I may be wrong, but I don't think so. I think Hezbollah would go to war if Hezbollah is attacked. Or there is a high probability of Hezbollah going to war with Israel if Iran is attacked. So I don't think that Hezbollah would go to war over Palestinians. But Hezbollah would offer, continue to offer its solidarity, its support for the Palestinian cause. And it would also, what, what they call the right to resistance. They call whatever Hamas did, does, irrespective of Hamas's brutality, Hezbollah would support Hamas. Right, right. That clarifies a lot. Thank you, Stanley, for that. And I was also wondering uh, uh, what you said earlier about uh, the right to return of uh, Palestinian refugees in the case of, you know, eventually peace uh, becoming a reality and how the Israeli state has been resistant to that. And in this context, uh, uh, there is also a lot of uh, commentary and debate uh, globally about Israel being described as an apartheid state. Uh, where you uh, have different policies uh, for people depending on whether they are Palestinians or uh, Israelis and uh, you know or, uh, or Arabs living in Gaza or Arabs living in Israel so when did these apartheid like policies uh, start and and what exactly do these policies mean for uh, for the people living in that uh, in the entire territory of let us say historical Palestine so we can say that it started from right from 1967. 1967 after Israel captured these territories because from 1970s onwards, Israel has been supporting and encouraging settlements in this region, uh, in Gaza as well as the West Bank and also in East Jerusalem. So Israel has annexed East Jerusalem, but you see uh, the Palestinians living in East Jerusalem, the vast majority of Palestinians are not Israeli citizens. So they can't vote. So the region is, from Israel's point of view, it is Israel proper. Now is Jerusalem, though it lacks international recognition. But the Palestinians living in East Jerusalem cannot vote in Israel's national elections. They can vote only in the municipal elections. So in the West Bank, actually, you know, the Palestinians are living in, in small communities, uh, which are surrounded by Israeli checkpoints and barriers. So West Bank has some 400,000 Jewish settlers now. West Bank has some 400,000 and roughly 300,000 are there in East Jerusalem. So these Jewish settlements are, you know, um, segregated from Palestinian townships with huge walls. So the Palestinians are not allowed to go in unless they have permits. And even within the Palestinian territories, they need permits to go from one place to the other, which we had discussed in the previous uh, episode. And there are Highways built right in the West Bank, which are not open to the Palestinian Arabs. So the activists call it an apartheid highway. For example, if you are in uh, Ramallah, uh, the Palestinian administrative headquarters, and if you want to fly out of the Tel Aviv airport, you need a taxi. And the Palestinian uh, in Ramallah cannot take you to the Tel Aviv airport because they are not allowed to enter the main Tel Aviv-Jerusalem highway. 
and the Israelis would not come to Ramallah because of security reasons, right? So you need to get uh, an Arab in Jerusalem, an Arab taxi driver in Jerusalem, to come to Ramallah, pick you up, and then drop you in Tel Aviv. I am saying this because I did this when I was in Ramallah. I had to call a taxi from Jerusalem uh, to travel from Ramallah to Tel Aviv. So, I mean, you have these policies, right? And in, even in Gaza, Gaza, Israel has pulled back troops, but Gaza has been under the Israeli occupied. Technically speaking, Israeli and Egyptian blockade since 2007. Uh, so this is how Israel is trying to keep the Palestinians under check or the Palestinian movement under check. Uh, this is what activists call an apartheid model. Right. And in this uh, apartheid model, I mean, it's of course very clear that basic human rights uh, have been violated uh, and it's been going on not for uh, a short time, for a very long time. And this has been possible, uh, many would argue, uh, primarily because Israel enjoys uh, the support of the world's uh, superpower, especially the United States. And uh, it is widely believed that uh, these kind of apartheid policies could not be sustained unless uh, uh, there is unconditional support from the U.S. So, can you talk a little bit about what drives uh, this U.S. support for Israel and and has uh, has it been sort of uh, not been affected by Israel acting sometimes in ways that might harm American interests as well? So, uh, the support, I think, the two ways. One is that from, right from the, from the Suez war, the United States has seen Israel as its most important ally in West Asia. And also it's a, it's a nuclear power. It's a major, it's an undeclared nuclear power. It's a major military force. And uh, the United States has stood behind Israel, irrespective of what Israel is doing. And Israel is, you know, uh, has violated, is living in violation of a lot of international norms, rules, and laws, and UN Security Council resolutions, right? But the United States never applies meaningful pressure on Israel. So one is that the United States sees, continues to see Israel as uh, an ally, as its most important ally in the region. Secondly, what John Mayer Shamer and Stephen Walt calls the Jewish lobby, the influence of the Jewish lobby in Washington, D.C. IPAC is very powerful, which has influence over both uh, political parties. And... Uh, uh, so that is that is also they have enormous influence over policy making decisions in the United States. So the American presidents find it difficult to. So there is this institutional consensus in D.C. that you can't give up Israel. You know whether the president is Barack Obama or George W. Bush or President Biden or President Trump. There is this institutional consensus. So you can only be, uh, you know. Uh, more pro-Israel. You can't be anti-Israel in D.C. That is the reality. Because Obama, we discussed, Obama had talked about Palestinian freedom, but it is Obama who left all resolutions uh, except one uh, being vetoed in the U.N. Security Council. And Trump recognized Jerusalem and Golan Heights as Israeli territories. And uh, President Biden who, when he became president, said that he was committed to a foreign policy centered around human rights went to Israel, uh, you know, when Israel was carrying out this relentless bombing of Gaza, and also a few hours after the hospital was bombed in which hundreds of people were killed. Uh, so Biden went there, offered his support for 
uh, Israel's right to defend, right? So it is, and it is in contrast uh, to what the Americans are doing in other parts of the world. So you can see that irrespective of who is in power, this institutional consensus always produced policies that are supportive of Israel. Right. There is this institutional consensus, no doubt, uh, in the you know, in the American establishment about support for Israel. And one sometimes does wonder if there are any uh, red lines in terms of human rights or the values which uh, the Western uh, OECD countries especially do espouse in general, whether they are also considered as relevant uh, in the Israel-Palestine context. Thank you so much, uh, Stanley, for a really fascinating outline a detailed explanation of the history of this conflict from 1948 to the present. I just want to tell our listeners that we will be back with the third and final episode of this three-part series where we look at the present situation where we go into different dimensions of it in greater detail. Thank you so much, Stanley. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Sambat. Look forward to the next one. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.